This week's episode of The Dive is brought to you by Pelican Brewing. For nearly 30 years, Pelican Brewing has crafted the most balanced tasting brews. Now, they're bringing the same satisfying taste to hop-infused sparkling water with zero alcohol and zero calories. Sparkle Hops is a hop and fruit-infused new way to elevate your everyday. Expertly brewed from hops in two flavors, Citra Hop-infused sparkling water with lemon and Strata Hop-infused sparkling water with acai. Start with a sip and breeze away with the balance of quality hops, ripe fruit, and punchy fizz. Refreshment, it's a pelican thing. Welcome to the Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week, where every Saturday we discuss the biggest news stories of the week with Portland's noisiest newsmakers, savviest culturistas, and some of the best journalists in the game. I'm your host, Brianna Wheeler, and I want to hear from you. So send your questions and comments to me, bwheeler at wweek.com. All right, y'all, enjoy the show. One of my favorite quotes comes from... America's sixth president, John Quincy Adams. I have to study politics and war so that my sons can study mathematics, commerce, and agriculture so their sons can study poetry, painting, and music. I've always taken that to mean, what is all of this for, if not art? Like, the final destination is art. We need art to thrive. Art is life. Life is art. Art is what makes it all worthwhile. I'm not being like an art school bougie bougierella over here. I'm talking about grandma telling stories over family dinner. Storytelling is art. Food is art. Finger painting with your children on a drizzly Sunday afternoon. Painting is art. Losing yourself in your jams before you lose your shit in rush hour traffic. Music is art. And art just saved your life. Art is more than stark museum halls and austere galleries and chamber music and couplets, blah, blah, blah. Art is inextricable from life. Art shapes culture. It defines eras. It records our histories. It tells our stories. Second to love, it's the most important thing. Is that on period? I feel like that's on period. It's Saturday, December 10th, and this is episode 101 of The Dive. On today's episode, I'm chatting arts, culture, influence, and identity with Bennett Campbell Ferguson, WW's assistant arts and culture editor, and Mickey Gillette, one of the 25 most powerful artists featured in this week's issue. Ben and I will talk about quantifying influence, and Mickey and I will talk about the power of representation in just one sec. But first, here's what I learned from this week's issue of Willamette Week. Oh my God, Mushroom House, RIP, long live Mushroom House. Anthony Effinger and Lucas Manfield reported on the wonder of how Mushroom House, a retail storefront selling psilocybin shrooms on West Burnside, was operating undisturbed. But that's all gone now. The store was raided the night after the paper dropped. So it's just Portland lore now, resting with the 24-hour Church of Elvis and the Alberta Clown House. Lucas Manfield also reports that Mayor Ted Wheeler had proposed involuntary commitment for mentally ill houseless people who refused treatment. 
In Lucas's own words, quote, civil rights issues aside, even if police began sweeping up people along with their tents, there's nowhere to send them for mental health treatment. The state hospital is full, thanks to a federal order and a long-standing practice. It accepts few, if any, civilly committed patients. Instead, the civilly committed are sent to local hospitals. Those hospitals cannot treat them, and they're suing the state because of it. Michelle Kirshner reports that Gary Houston, the graphic artist and prolific screen printer behind the Waterfront Blues Fest posters, is having an annual show slash sale at Music Millennium this weekend, December 10th and 11th. So catch it if you can. Um, also, his studio is called Voodoo Catbox. Just think about that. All right. Now let's talk to Bennett Campbell Ferguson about quantifying influence in the world of art. It was uh, it was a very drawn out, you know, um, multi peopled process. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, I had ideas, and uh, I, you know, I reached out to people in the community. I, I think a, a lot of the ideas, you know, came from the writers who ended up writing for the issue, and and uh, Mark had great ideas as well. So a lot of it was, you know, me kind of you know hearing pitches from the writers, and then. And, you know, bringing those to Mark and really, you know, we're trying to have very honest conversations about, you know, who, who is, is really influential because a lot of people who we like or respect or think are great artists, but, you know, maybe they wouldn't, we wouldn't categorize them as, as, you know, influential either creatively or uh, financially. So it was really just weighing, weighing those uh, pros and cons and, and dealing with kind of these these issues of like you know if if you're talking about you know major music people in the city you know who who is more influential Isaac Brock or Colin Malloy mm-hmm. there was disagreement on that so we included them both. <laughs> <laughs> How many creators did you consider? Oh gosh, I mean, I mean, I think I think probably you know the number of people we considered is it's got to be like you know. I mean, maybe getting close to 50 because there were... Wow. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of names that that came and, and went for sure. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of artists. Yeah, yeah. And it still breaks my heart, you know, the, the people that, you know, for whatever reason we couldn't uh, include, uh, you know, just because of, you know, that just didn't fit in with this particular issue. And then also, you know, just uh, there were some... I, 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 I won't, you know, say who, but there were some people we would have loved to include, but they declined to be interviewed. And I get it. They have lives, you know, they're busy yeah. being influential, <laughs> but, but, I, but I kind of, I, I had to, I had to put that in the introduction to the issue to kind of like acknowledge to the reader. Like if, if you're, if you're thinking like, Oh, like how could you not, you know, put so-and-so in it's like, well, they might've been one of the people we tried to get. Yeah. <laughs> But but being an artistically influential person, I get it. It's a, it's a busy job. <laughs> totally right. Um, were there any um, disagreements between the team about who should be included? Like, did you guys get into it um, <laughs> when you were deciding who to include? That's a that's a good question. I mean, yeah the I mean the Isaac Brock Colin Malloy thing like that was the the big one, and of course we solved that by saying well. We can have uh, we can have both. I, I think that um, th- this was very much a process of like I mean, you know, having 
having, you know, been like a, you know, a performing arts writer for a long time now, there, there are a lot of people I love who I, I just, I find so inspiring that I thought to me, it was obvious, of course, you know, they should be on there. Like, like for a, for a long time, I kept bringing up, uh, Jamie Hampton and Ashley Rowland who run Body Box because mm. I just I just think that I mean to me that's some of the most exciting contemporary dance that's happening in the city and uh, uh, the, the the case was made to me and, and and rightly I think that you know there were there were other there were other dance folks you know who are you know more influential than than body box. So it's, I think, I think part of this was kind of like trying to like, a, you know, turn down the volume on my like sort of arts critic brain and like go into more like, you know, reporter mode and, and think about like, well, you know, like how many people see actually see this person shows or, you know, like how, how much, you know, money is this person actually donating? Like kind of, I mean, influence is such a nebulous like concept sure. it's hard to quantify it so of course like it's very subjective but but it was there was still like like trying to like get more into the hard data if it and, and then you find that like oh the kind of the, the you know the the person you're getting on the podium for like like maybe they're not as influential as, as they are to you personally <laughs> yeah i that is such a like it's such an interesting um thing to think about the idea of influence and how subjective that is. Yes. I mean, how yeah. did how did you quantify it? Like, what 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 is the data that you're you're looking at? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I mean, what I mean, definitely there was a mandate with the story to you know whenever possible you know bring numbers into it. So oh. I mean, there's a you know one of the people who did make the the cut was the the great playwright E. M. Lewis who has uh, has a uh, you know written 20 plays, you know, several of them published by Samuel French. So like she had a kind of quantifiable mark she made on Portland theater. And also she wrote uh, the great play Modulonica, which was, you know, five hours long and, you know, made such a, 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 a splash artist rep. So, you know, when, when, when you're kind of your crowning masterpiece is five hours long, has four intermissions and including a dinner break and is still like, a massive success and sells a lot of tickets. Well, that's, that's something it's like, you can say like, Oh, this person's a great artist, but also, you know, there, there's a, you know, you, you, you could, you, you could, if you wanted like make a pie chart, <laughs> of the, the impact she had. Thanks Bennett. Now let's talk shop with playwright and activist Mickey Gillette. Oh yeah. When I was younger, um, I was an English major. I grew up in LA and, you know, everybody in L.A. at that time was writing screenplays. What part of L.A. are you from? Uh, the San Fernando Valley, and then I went to UCLA. Oh, right on. I'm from Long Beach. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, and then I lived around, like, West L.A., so kind of near Westwood for a few years after that. Oh, right on. Yeah, and I just kind of noticed that what I was writing as screenplays um, didn't have much in common with the good things that I had read. <laughs> when I was in college and then I started studying those a little more closely and trying to figure out how to make my work more like that. And that made me want to work on plays as opposed to screenplays because it feels like there's a little more room for art and the, the writing's a little more respected in that field, even if there's not 
as much money. <laughs> so you were writing plays in Los Angeles? Well, yeah, I I tried, but I, you know, I'm transgender. And so before I transitioned and really understood that part of my identity, that kind of stuff would come up in my writing. And that made me sort of uncomfortable because it always felt like this secret and this thing that society had told me was shameful. Mm. And so I was probably a little blocked in that way. And then when I started transitioning, it was like, you know, this uh, fountain opened or something. <laughs> I was writing every day. And uh, so that that's kind of the story of how things went. Would you say that, ri- that writing was like, led you to the transition that kind of opened that up for you? I think they were kind of, um, they happened like at the same time, sort of once I started accepting that part of myself, I really started wanting to express it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like art was a way to help me process and understand it. Mm-hmm. I understand. So what drives the work? Um, like what are your artistic motivators? Oh, yeah, that's so mysterious. I, <laughs> is it? You know, it's not like I sit down consciously and think of what I want to write, but then I often find that what I'm writing is something maybe six months or a year from now is going to be really important to me. Uh, I do think there's this desire to be understood, desire to somehow convey the things that are are hard about life. Um, You know, if I'm talking to a friend, it's really easy to talk about the things that are going well. But if that friend, especially a cisgender, it's hard to maybe explain what can be hard about being trans and, uh, you know, what those wounds can feel like. So I feel like it's a way to kind of express that in a a form that people can understand and empathize with. Mm -hmm. Your work speaks to the trans experience. Is it fair to say that the productions are for an audience broader than the LGBTQIA community? Or or is it more queer art for queer people, that kind of crucial representation vibe? Uh, I think it's the former. Um, Yeah, I think that someone, when I was younger, an artist who meant a lot to me was Spike Lee. Same. Yeah, I felt like his his movies were just so singular and artistic. And so I responded to that, but I also felt like he was portraying communities that I wasn't a part of. I could learn things from them. Not that they were documentaries, but like it kind of opened a door that wasn't really available in other parts of my life. And I sort of think of that with my work. I hope it's like that. I hope Mm -hmm. that trans people could come and see it and be like, oh yeah, that really feels true to life. But someone who isn't queer could come and say, oh, I didn't know, you know, that was a concern or I'd never walked a mile in that person's shoes, something like that. Mm When you're casting these productions, is it is it difficult to find trans performers to come and fill these roles, or is it a glut of them? Are they just waiting for you? Uh, it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I think there's been this kind of catch-22 where there other theater companies aren't casting trans people, so trans people aren't looking to be cast because they're like, oh, there's no real parts for us. And so if you just go to something like backstage and put an audition notice, you might not get responses. Mm-hmm. So for the queers, which had five trans roles, we were really 
kind of going to trans Facebook groups, asking people we knew, <laughs> just, you know, really kind of beating the bushes to, to get the people that we needed. And yeah. I hope it'll, it'll be a case where things gain momentum. Like some people who are in the queers have been in other roles since then. And, you know, you hope people will be like, oh, I didn't know that person was out there. I need them in my play too. Yeah. There's so much anti-trans rhetoric right now um and it's so divisive and i was wondering from your point of view as an artist and an activist what what do these kind of ignorant shit-stirring culture warriors what do they need to know about the trans experience Mm. yeah i you know i thought like when I first started transitioning, which was a while ago, I thought the thing that was going to be different about trans rights as opposed to gay rights was that gender identity emerges so young. Mm. And so there would be these parents telling their stories of these kids and people would listen to and believe the parents. And it just didn't occur to me that they wouldn't at all. (laughs) Politicians wouldn't listen. They would run from the parents. Like, all these bad faith actors would just spread these myths. I think people need to know we've always been here. You know, we've been forced into the closets. We've been forced into sex work and the margins of societies, but we've always been here. Like there wouldn't be a prohibition against this in the Bible if people weren't doing this when they wrote the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, People just want to live their lives. You know, people want the space to be themselves and just kind of pursue their dreams. And um, and it doesn't hurt. I don't. It doesn't cost anybody anything to give people the space to do that. Yeah. Um, no one's trying to convert anybody. Like that is the weirdest one to me. Having worked in schools like teachers have so much to do they do not have time to try to convert boys into girls (laughs) what can we expect from mickey gillette in 2023 yeah so in february i'm gonna have a show um called my perfectly valid objections i call it a feminist comedy about dating while trans (laughs) That will be site-specific, so it'll be at the Oblique Coffee Roasters on Star, which is kind of a fun place, because there's a lot of dates, like people going on dates in the play. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then in April, uh, there'll be another play called American Girl, and that one is, uh, that's more of a tragedy, and it's the true story of Nikki Kuhnhausen, who was a trans teen who was killed in Vancouver, Washington in a hate crime in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I worked with her family and friends to kind of research that. And that will be Fuse Theater Ensemble is doing that at the Backdoor Theater. That's awesome. That's amazing. I'm so, I mean, that, I remember that story and I remember how fucking tragic that was. But I'm, I'm happy that the story is in your hands now. Do you know what I mean? If there was anybody's hands that it should be in, you know? So that's something, that's really, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Big 
thanks to this week's guests, Bennett Campbell Ferguson and Mickey Gillette. And thank you for joining me. I hope you'll join me again next week. Until then, bye.